All right. We're in Leviticus. The aim is to cover six chapters. So it's definitely survey. We're not going to read six chapters, but we're going to cover it. And I think we'll read chapter one. Um, Not that it is necessarily like a, a great summary or encapsulation sort of passage. It's sort of just one of the offerings followed by other offerings, boom, boom, boom. But it at least gives us a taste, a flavor for, for the kind of content that we're in and how the, these burnt offerings and sacrifices were ordained by God to Israel. So let's just read chapter 1, uh, beginning verse 1. The Lord, that's Yahweh, called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. And I'll just remind you, I'll pause right there and remind you that that content of God speaking out of the tabernacle is the bulk of the book of Leviticus, is him speaking out these instructions. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priests shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it, on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for the burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Um, If you were to go on and read through chapter 6, which we're going to survey today, we'll see that uh, a lot of the offerings, actually all of them, that are in this section, um, involved uh, fire, burning things up. And um, that's interesting because this first offering, uh, even though it's very similar to other ones, is called a burnt offering. And you may say, well, 
what's the difference between this burnt offering and the other offerings that you burned? <laughs> and uh, the uh, so there's there's a the parallel in that this is called a burnt offering, but it's it's like other ones. It's a subcategory of food offerings because you could have a food offering that was an animal or that was of the of your produce. Um, and, and here, this type of offering could fall into, and it's sort of in three parallel chunks there, from three onward, 10 onward, 14 onward, are sort of three ways you could do this one burnt offering. So you could have an offering from the herd, that'd be a, a bull, or you could have an offering from your flock, so a sheep or a goat, um, or you could have a bird, which would be turtle doves or uh, pigeons, and it seems that the, the birds were to be a special provision for those who couldn't afford larger animals. Uh, whatever kind of animal it was, well, at least for the flocks or the herds, it was to be a male without blemish. The, the birds were not told that they selected males specifically here. But uh, the, the sheep and the bulls and, and goats were to be males without blemish. And we're reminded in that that the sacrifice to God had to be of the, the best of the flocks and of the herds or of the best that the worshiper could offer because it was supposed to be a sacrifice that was serious and reverent and that, that uh, was uh, reflective of the holiness of God and that he deserved this sacrifice that was serious and, and that was reverent. And by way of contrast, I want us to go over to Malachi, and we're going to spend a minute over here in Malachi uh, chapter 1. In Malachi, we have an example of corrupt and impure worship of the Lord. And it's an indictment to them that they're not doing it properly. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. So he gives these human examples like, look, a son reverences his father. That was an, is a natural uh, 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 deference to a person who is, is a, an, an elder and who has authority over you. The son reverences his father. And a servant reverences his master. That's a normal thing that you would see in everyday life where a servant is under obligation to treat his master rightly. And then God says, if I'm your father, where is my honor? Or if I'm the master, where is my fear? Where is the behavior toward me that would be the natural and logical outflow of recognizing that I'm your father and, and your master, where's your submission to me? Instead, the priests, he says, are despising my name. And then continuing on there in verse number six, but you say, how have we despised your name? Malachi is full of those sort of questions and answers where God makes an accusation and they go, what? Where'd we do that? <laughs> There's several of them throughout the book. How have we despised your name? God says, verse 7, here's how you did it. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. 
When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Um, all of this is, is demonstrating that it wasn't that God decided just to be super demanding to get their best animals, but that their best animals were reflective of recognizing who God was. You know, you, don't, you, you wouldn't despise your, gov- your human governor, so why would you despise God? Offer a sacrifice that meets his standards. Uh, verse number nine. Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered in my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. You snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So God here is jealous for his own glory. He's jealous to be adored as he rightly is, and for his name to be magnified as the great God. But a people worshiping who, who offer unacceptable sacrifices are demeaning the name of God. They're bringing him down. They're not showing him the reverence that he was due. And that's the kind of reverence uh, here in Leviticus that he required of them, and that in Malachi they failed to carry through on. So they needed to bring male sacrifices without blemish to the Lord. And here with this burnt offering, as with with other offerings, the, the worshiper there in verse number four would lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And, and the idea is, is that it, it, he laid a, a heavy hand, like he, he uh, applied some weight on there, symbolic of his association with the sacrifice that was being offered in his place. And then, uh, so we have that idea of substitution, right? The animal is standing in the place of the worshiper, and the worshiper uh, lays his hand on the, on the offering to demonstrate that sort of transfer or that substitution of one thing for another, of the animal for himself. And, and, and what happens when he does that? It shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So, uh, and then, verse 5, then he shall kill the bull. So again, the, the worshiper is the one who kills the the bull or or the uh, sheep or the goat later on in the chapter, um, the birds were killed by the priest, but the larger animals, the worshiper himself, after after having that laying on of hands, is the one who would kill the bull, and then the blood would be thrown or poured at the side of the altar, um, the legs and and um, entrails would be washed, but then the whole thing would be burned up. Uh, we read later uh, on uh, in chapter uh, seven. 
that they didn't burn up the hide, that the hide went to the priests. But otherwise, the whole carcass of the animal here in this burnt offering was burned up and consumed, and it's said to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord in all three categories, the flocks and the herds um, and uh, the, the birds. All three of them have that phrase that this offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And we understand from that that that's what we call a, an anthropomorphism, or that's God describing himself in a human way so that we can understand it. Because God doesn't have a nose, right? And neither uh, do we need to make a smoke column that can go up high enough to get to God's nose. Like we're not doing, or, or they wouldn't have been doing either of those things to, to, with this offering. But, but it would be that he would accept this worship as pleasing to him, like a pleasing aroma. And that's something that we can relate to and, and understand. And, and God would be genuinely pleased by this worship of, the, of his people. Um, and this is so good because we have two things. In verse 4, that, that laying on of hands and the atonement that the bull would be a substitute for the, the worshiper, it would actually be accepted, which is a big deal. Remember we talked about all last week that this book of Leviticus is a way so that God could dwell in the midst of his people and he could approach to them. And so for this, the, the fact that this sacrifice actually worked is a big deal, that God would have provided a sacrifice that at least temporarily till Christ could come could actually atone and, and cover for their sins until, until the Messiah would arrive. That it would be sufficient to accomplish that is a, is a remarkable bit of God's grace at this time that, uh, that they could uh, find a lot of, of hope in as they trusted what God had provided. Like, I'm doing this, and God's going to actually accept it, and I can trust what God is saying, even, even here, that he'll accept this bull as, a, as an atoning sacrifice, or sheep, or a pigeon, whatever the case may be. And then, on top of that, that as this worship ascends up to God, that it's actually a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Because again, we have this, this gulf between sin and God, or sinners and God, or uh, uh, symbolically all the way through the book, you have things that are clean and things that are unclean. Like, not everything can come near God, but this worship that was done rightly and from the right heart, heart attitude as the worshiper comes, could actually be pleasing to the Lord, that the worshiper could actually do something that honored and that pleased God as he did what God required um, of him. The, the commentators have observed that you have these three levels. You have a bull, which is a pretty significant sacrifice, <laughs> right? And you have a goat, which is a big deal, but not as big as a, a bull. But then if you're, if you're poor and you bring pigeons... And, you know, uh, most people can afford a, a couple of pigeons. But that all three categories, God is pleased with it. It's not as though he went, oh, yeah, bull, man, that's, that's great. Oh, pigeons, uh, good, good try, you know, nice effort. <laughs> like, that, that's not the distinction. The distinction, or there isn't a distinction there. In all three of them, whatever the worshiper could afford and bring to God with this heart of genuine worship, uh, any of it, would be pleasing to the Lord. It's reminiscent of the of the widow's mite, right? That she, or mites. The poor lady only gets credit for one when she she brought mites. But <laughs> the widow's mites um, that that she brings to the Lord uh, to leave an offering at the at the temple, and uh, 
and again, and he God God doesn't just uh, demonstrate that uh, what Jesus teaches his disciples there isn't that all sacrifice is equal, but actually those mites were greater because they were everything that she had. And that was more acceptable to the Lord, even though it was so small by human standards, it was more acceptable to the Lord than the guys who come in with their trumpets and go, do, 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 look at my giant check that I'm handing over to the, to the, to the Lord. Look at me, let's take foot wop. You know, <laughs> that those mites were far more acceptable to the Lord because it comes from actual worship. It was actually the person's best. And like we just saw in Malachi, it wasn't as though the empty formalities of the sacrifice were what God demanded, but that he actually be reverenced properly, that he actually be uh, made much of properly. So this sacrifice would please God and it would be a a, an atoning sacrifice for the people. Um, this offering isn't described in a context of, of uh, sin. This description doesn't have when you commit such and such sins, then you should do this sort of offering. It's just sort of uh, just hanging there that, that they apparently would on occasion, it doesn't give us a schedule either, um, except we know that the priests did it uh, daily, but when the... Um, when an actual individual would bring this sort of sacrifice, we don't really know how often of an occasion that it would be done or, or what kind of thing would prompt it, but it was a, a sacrifice of uh, worship to the Lord, and it was acceptable and pleasing to him. We're going to get to other ones in a little bit that were actually like, if you sin in such a way, here's the blood that needs to be shed. But this one isn't, isn't described quite in that way. But it ascended to the Lord, and that's the idea with a burnt offering. I mentioned, you know, what's the difference between this one being burnt and the rest of them that got burned? Well, here, the, what's, what's translated as a burnt offering is that which ascended up to the Lord. So the sacrifice would go up in smoke and ascend up to the Lord and be acceptable to him. And uh, we see that uh, emphasized a little bit more once we get chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have grain offerings. Grain offerings are another food offering. Um, and there was uh, fire involved, but here it's called a grain offering. And just like burnt offering uh, in chapter 1 is literally an ascension offering or a, a sacrifice that would go up to the Lord, uh, here a grain offering um, is, is, just, is literally an offering that's a gift, Here's a gift offering, or you may know the word from the New Testament, Corban, uh, that which is a, a gift. And so here they would bring a grain offering as a gift to the Lord. And again, this isn't described as a particular sin that prompted this. This is, um, this is just offering this a gift. It's not meant to be an atoning sacrifice for sin. It's not even a blood offering. It's just a, a gift to the Lord. And uh, much like we think of tithes and offerings uh, in church now. Uh, this was sort of like that in that it also made provision for the priests by the food that was given. So these gift offerings, um, it could be brought from, from among any of the crops. You could bring a grain offering to the Lord. And he describes uh, grain offerings that were baked and ones that were fried in a pan um, and, and different sort of, of grain offerings that you might bring. 
And uh, so it could be from among any of your uh, crops, but it could also be a special sort of grain offering that was your first fruits. So the first, fr- the, the first of your harvest, and you could bring that as a gift to the Lord. And so again, the first fruits, like in verse number 14, uh, if you bring a grain offering of first fruits, um, that's sort of a special, a special sort of grain offering or a special sort of gift, then, excuse me, what you're doing with that, again, is bringing your best to the Lord, the first part of your harvest, and you're giving that as a gift to the Lord. It's what is best, and it's also trusting him for the rest of your harvest that is to come. Um, the first fruits were whole vegetables or whole grains that were burned up with oil and frankincense as a gift to the Lord, and that's described in 14 and onward. But at the beginning of the chapter, you have various flour and baked and fried cakes that were brought to the Lord. They are mingled with uh, oil and incense, which are symbolic of, of luxury and of joy that God provided people. As in Proverbs 27, 9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. So these things that were considered to be sort of rich, rich and luxur- luxurious and things that you would find delight in, like, wow, God's provided. We have oil. We're, we're living it up. Uh, we got frankincense. These things that were uh, joyful provisions of God that they would mix with their gr- uh, uh, cakes and, or grains and bring to the Lord. And with a, with a grain offering, uh, you would take a portion of it, uh, the memorial portion is described in my translation, and, and that memorial portion would be uh, offered as a, a burnt offering to the Lord. And it would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord there in verse number two. Uh, But the rest of the grain offerings, verse three, the rest of the grain offering would be for Aaron and his sons. It's the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. So uh, the the part was burned, the rest was saved for Aaron and his sons, and thus it would supply for the needs of the priests who were serving in the the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Once you get into the promised land is just uh, where the the land is divided up among all the, the tribes. It's only divided up amongst 11 of them. And then the Levites got certain cities, but they didn't have a whole state, county, whatever you want to call it. They didn't have a whole territory to themselves. And so these sort of gifts from the rest of the tribes would have been important uh, for taking care of them and it's a reminder, too, that just because something was going to another human being, in this case the priests, didn't mean that it wasn't the Lord's. They were supporting these people uh, as a way of giving a gift to the Lord because those people, the priests, were the ones who labored in the, in the tabernacle and who carried out these sacrifices and their other priestly duties. And so, It was to the Lord. In fact, it's described as a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. This is a gift to God. It's set apart to him. This is for worship. And yet, what happened to it? Well, it went to the priests, and it took took care of their needs. And so that was a way of worshiping uh, the Lord and of taking care of of God's servants. In verse number... um, 11, you have some details on the, the grain offerings and, and some regulations. Verse 11, no grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. So it wasn't supposed to be made with yeast or whatever sort of a fermentation 
a rising agent that they used at, at that time. You shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Uh, it seems that honey and leaven were not to be included in burnt offerings uh, because, uh, possibly because they were symbolic of the corruption of sin. And on the other side of the coin, the salt was always supposed to be included, possibly because it was symbolic of the preserving and, and, and uh, the fact that salt actually withheld corruption. The, the leaven would produce corruption, you know, symbolic of sin, while salt would, would withhold corruption, and symbolic of, of resisting or stopping sin. And so these offerings were given to the Lord and took care of the, the priest's there, there, there would be considered a, a gift. So you have the ascension and you have the gift in one and two. On to chapter three, here we have the peace offerings. And like the ascension offering, the peace offering is burnt on the altar. It's considered to be another sort of food offering. However, the peace offering is not all burned up to the Lord. Instead, just portions of it are. Look at verse number three. So chapter 2, verse 3, from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood of the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So here's a burnt offering. It's called a peace offering. And again, this one's not said to be a, well, I shouldn't say again. This one is not even mentioned that it has atoning qualities. It's not said to be a sacrifice for atonement. Instead, this is a peace offering in that it's a sacrifice that pointed toward fellowship with God. And it actually involved feasting for the worshiper. Uh, so this was more of a joyous, happy, reflecting on, on, on fellowship and peace with God. It wasn't to atone for sin or to create peace where there had been violation. Instead, this was to celebrate and enjoy that there was fellowship with God. Um, chapter 7, which we're not going to flip to, um, but, but it sort of re reiterates parts about the, uh, the peace offering. And it tells us that the right thigh and the right breast went to the priest so the fat and kidneys we just read about got burned. The right side uh, went to the priests for them to eat, and the rest of it was for the worshiper to eat. Um, so this is something that, that uh, is something for the worshiper to enjoy as he's offered part of it to God and part of it to the priest, and he gets part of it, and it's, re it's reflecting the fact that they could have peace and fellowship with God. Only the fat and the kidneys and the liver got burned up. Verses 16 and 17, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the priest shall burn them, that is the fat, on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Uh, we're, we're pretty familiar with um, the biblical instructions on not eating blood because uh, it comes up fairly often. Even in the New Testament, there's talking acts about not eating uh, blood. But uh, so we're pretty familiar with that. Fat 
we're not quite as familiar with, but here, that's the part that got sacrificed to the Lord. So it belonged to him. And so he describes even how they should dissect the critter in such a way that these certain things were to be burned up for him. And so they, they would have these peace offerings, fellowship offerings, to enjoy fellowship with God. And it, it ends up being a shadow, I think, for us of the, of the great fellowship that we have with God, the peace we have with God, uh, not only as his people, like they were, we actually have fellowship with God as, as children, as, as sons of God. And they could enjoy, enjoy that fellowship by means of this peace offering. Were you going to say something, Pastor Matt? Um, the first, uh, the burnt offering says it will be an atonement for you, okay. although it doesn't describe them bringing it for a specific violation, um, but it would be pleasing to God on their behalf. Um, the grain offering, I don't think it mentions atonement. Um, it, it's not even a blood sacrifice, but um, it's a gift, like this is, for, this is for the Lord. So I don't think sin is really in the spotlight with the grain offering at all. And neither with the peace offering. Even though peace offering is a bloody sacrifice, it's a peace or a fellowship offering to the Lord. Um, and it doesn't mention atonement there. <clears throat> Once we get to chapter 4, we really get into the sin offerings. So this is what people sin, and the demand is that their sin be paid for some way, or that it be atoned for. And it begins with unintentional sins. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them. And to me, that's kind of curious, because I feel like I sin intentionally way more often than unintentionally. Like, how often do you do something and later you're like, Oh, that was wrong. Especially if you've been... Um, a Christian for very long or read God's, God's word very much at all, then you would be generally familiar with things that are sinful. And they, they were familiar with, with this as they went through the centuries, like God's law. And, 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 uh, and I look at that as someone who's been a believer for a long time ago. I, I just don't see very often where I sin and then later go, oh, that was wrong. Like, I didn't know that. <laughs> and so how often would this kind of thing be? necessary is the question I have. Like, how often was someone genuinely just like, oh, I, I was really unaware that I was supposed to do this. So to me, at first blush, it's sort of a strange category of unintentional sin. But when it happened, um, and we'll, I'll get to it in just a second, but when this happened, and then this sacrifice was necessary, as soon as the sinner realized his guilt. So when it was this category of I did this thing, I find out later that I did what was wrong. Well, I have to recognize my guilt in it, even though I didn't know it when I was doing it. Like, this is retroactive. Our legal system actually doesn't allow punishment for these sort of sins. You can't change the speed limit and then charge you for the new speed limit that you broke before. Like, it doesn't work that way. But, but here, when a person became aware of a sin that they had previously committed that they, they were unaware of, they were supposed to recognize their guilt under it. Um, if we go to chapter 5, I think we're helped because we see some of the things that fell under this category of unintentional sins, which that's, that's what I need, is what kind of sin would this be? <laughs> so 
So chapter 5 describes it for us. So skip over there. Uh, Chapter 5, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So if you're a witness of a crime and you don't speak up about it, then, then that's a sin that has to be atoned for. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt. So uh, by touching an animal and not being aware that it was uh, unclean or maybe that it died already or you didn't know that you bumped into it, something along those lines, you're unclean, and later you recognize, oh man, I'm guilty. Or verse number three, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort of uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, and when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Joe, uh, just a second, Mike. Joe, what are you doing planting a tree over there? Like, we were using that for a latrine last year. Oh, man, like, now I'm unclean, okay? So things could happen by, by accident. What were you going to say, Pastor, uh, Mike? Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Peter. Peter, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you say, well, how, how is that, how is that affected by what you're doing here? Yeah, okay. If Peter has already learned that God has said, don't tell anything you don't have enough time to tell Peter. So that changes the circumstances somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. It is, didn't he learn it while he was there? Wasn't he at Simon the Tanner's when the sheet came down? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, some of these things are just necessary in the course of life. I mean, like burying bodies and stuff like that. It would have just been necessary, and they would have had to deal with the, the uncleanness that resulted from it. Yeah. Were you going to say something, Drew? No, that, that was, yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Simon, yeah, how his lifestyle would have looked when his job involves uncleanness is sort of an interesting puzzle. Yeah, lots of critters died for Simon. I guess you needed to skin them out anyway. <laughs> they need to make, make boots out of it the next day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
No, that's why I like to mention at potluck when we're eating bacon that like this really is a symbol of God's grace toward us. Like, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because this is realistic. Like, stuff happens, what are they supposed to do about it? And the provision was made. I mean, they didn't have to just go live like lepers outside the camp for the rest of their lives. There was actually things they could, they could do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he, he, that he was just providing for every, every contingency, really. Mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that could that could be too. That's a good point. Uh I don't think I've finished here in um chapter 5. Uh, verse three: If he teaches human, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which he becomes unclean, it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or goat for sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So there we have a description of, of a number of things that, that would have fallen under this category of, of uh, unintentional sins. Later recognizing their guilt, they would confess it and they would bring the, the required sacrifice. Also um, in Numbers 35, Sin offering is taught in association with, uh, with manslaughter, where you kill someone without premeditation, um, that this sacrifice would be necessary, uh, sort of as though it was an unintentional sin. Well, it would have been. You, 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 you didn't plan on killing the person, but it happened. Um, that would be a category of, of this, this sort of sin. And the sin offering is broken down, actually, by various... Uh, categories of people. It begins in verse 3 with the priest. So here's what the priest is supposed to do when um, they commit an unintentional sin and become aware of it. Verses 13 through 21 describes the whole congregation. So if the people just sort of corporately had committed some sort of offense, there was supposed to be a sacrifice on behalf of the whole, the whole body of the people. Uh, verses 22 and, and through 26 describes a leader, and this would sort of be like a, a, a leader of a, a tribe or of a, of a house, you know, like a chieftain, if you will, a, 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 not a spiritual leader, but a civic leader of some kind, I believe. 
um, what they were supposed to do when they sinned unintentionally. And then 27 and onward describes when a common person uh, committed this sort of unintentional sin, and they would bring various animals. The priests would bring a bull all the way down to the common people who would bring a lamb or, um, or a goat. So there's sort of these tiers depending on the people's status and what they were supposed to bring as a sacrifice. And here the blood would be sprinkled on the sides of the altar, but for the priests in the whole congregation, they would actually take blood into the holy place, that first section of the tabernacle, and in there would be the altar that had incense burning on it, the altar of incense, and it had these horns protruding out of the four corners. And so for the priest or for a sin of the whole people, they would put uh, blood there on the horns of the altar and sprinkle it uh, at the veil of the tabernacle. Um, in fact, I think it's described as... Um, I want to get it right. Verse 6, The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So I think that would be the veil in between the, the holy place and the most holy place. And then they would put the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense that is in the tent of meeting. Um, so I'm a little bit vague on whether the veil would have been first entering the tabernacle or whether it would have been the one in between the two sections. Regardless, they would sprinkle blood there, and then they put it on the horns of the altar that was inside there. And then for the, um, the common people, or the uh, tribal leader the, uh, that's described in verse 22, when they sinned and they, they sprinkled the blood, they would put the, the blood on the horns of the big altar that was out in the courtyard, the one that the big sacrifices were taking place on. And they would burn the fat on the altar, similar to the, the peace offering where these certain fatty parts of the animal would burn, were burned up. But then the, the bulls, they would haul the whole carcass outside the camp to the ash dump, and they would burn it outside the camp. Um, goats and sheep, when they were brought as a sin offering, those were eaten by the priests. So again, the fat's burned up, the rest of the critter is, is eaten, except the bull, where the whole thing is burned outside the camp. There's additional rules here in chapter 5, verse 7, that tells us again that if someone couldn't afford a lamb, then they were to bring turtle doves or pigeons. So again, you have this um, provision made for poor people to bring an acceptable sin offering. They couldn't bring a whole sheep, but they could bring um, turtle doves or pigeons if, they, if that was all that they could afford. So provision was even made for those who were needy in that way. And it's sort of interesting. It's almost like the pigeons and turtle doves were a substitute substitute. <laughs> like here's a lamb that's supposed to be a sacrifice. Well, I can't even afford that. Okay, you take this over here. You can bring this alternative with the with the turtle doves or the, the pigeons as a sacrifice to the Lord. Um, so, so these things were, the parts of them were burned that were supposed to be burned, and parts of them were eaten depending on the type of critter. And that was a, to atone. Uh, the very last verse of, of chapter 4, the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. So here we have it very explicit that this was for certain kinds of sins, that bloody sacrifice had to be made, they had to follow in these steps to do it. And this is so interesting because God doesn't ignore sin ever. And here we have this description of unintentional sins. Like, I didn't mean to do that. 
Well, it still had to be atoned for. It still had to be confessed and taken care of as soon as they were aware of the sin that they had committed. So there was no sweeping sin under the rug or ignoring it or making excuses for it or, or even claiming, you couldn't even claim, I didn't know it when I did it. That wasn't even an excuse for sin. It, it had to be atoned for because um, God is holy because it's what he required. From chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, um, we have laws for sins that required restitution because of the nature of the sin that had taken place. Uh, Verse 14 describes if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord. So it seems to be if they misused things that had been set apart for the Lord, Uh, He was to bring to the Lord as compensation a ram without blemish, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of sanctuary for a guilt offering. Uh, Verse 16, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priests. So you have sins that, that violated God's holy things. They not only had to bring a sacrifice, but they actually had to make uh, restitution and to make right um, the, the, the consequences that their sin had created. And in fact, they were supposed to bump it up a fifth to make restitution and to, to make right, to restore what had been uh, violated. Chapter 6, verse 2, still talking about this same sort of sacrifice, um, says, or sorry, verse 1, if anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor, in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, so finders keepers didn't stand in God's law, (laughs) swearing falsely, in any of all these things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, He shall restore it in its full and add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. So so again, we're in this category of sins where this person has been violated somehow financially, whether it be... Uh, you know, you're the tax guy and you didn't handle things rightly, or if it just be by outright robbery, you'd stolen something from someone, or you'd oppressed someone and taken what was not yours from someone, or if you'd lied and, uh, and gotten gained by that and hurt, harmed somebody else, then you were supposed to uh, make right uh, what you had taken from someone else. And again, bump it up a fifth to cover for how you had injured the person. And then you are supposed to offer this bloody sacrifice as a guilt offering to make atonement. But Gail drew our attention to a second ago, the, the grace of God in this. Verse number seven, the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. That's a big deal, you know, that you could be a violate God and, and, and other people have severely broken something, but if you walk through the provision that God had made in this law, there, there was forgiveness there. Like, it was available. He graciously provided the way for restoration. 
Um, and that's, that's huge. Sometimes sins even now require restitution on our part, and we should be willing if, if such occasions come up um, or if a person asks it of us or whatever would be integrity um, to restore things that we, we break or steal or, um, or wrong other people in other ways. Sometimes that's, that's necessary even now to make right the wrongs that we have done. And that is what God required for them here. They needed to make right what they had done, and they needed to offer a bloody sacrifice to atone uh, for their sins. We're going to tie up right there. I know we didn't read all of the text, but did you have any thoughts or uh, comments of, of what we covered this morning before we close? domesticated them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not unless you're real good with that sling. <laughs> yeah, it would yeah, it would be dead. You're right. They killed it right there. So they would bring him in alive. Yeah. That is just Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a good Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a way that they could have been doing that outside the temple in an ethical manner where they weren't ripping people off, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, seems seems they were domesticated and people would sell them to people who didn't have them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. That's that's good. Anything else? Just a few closing comments. Um, I think it's important that we glean from it that both an unintentional and intentional sins had to be dealt with. Elsewhere in Scripture, there's a category of sin that's described as, as high-handed that came with really severe consequences. But here, the emphasis is on uh, those two categories of unintentional uh, and intentional sins um, where you either didn't know you were doing it when you did it or where you... Uh, injured someone else financially or otherwise. Um, and in either way, it had to be dealt with, that there was no ignoring it or, or uh, diminishing the severity of it. It, it had to be dealt with. And with. With that, all through that, we've seen God providing atonement. And this, this whole reason this whole law exists was to provide for them 
Like it was, uh, it was a legal code, true, that they fell short of, and it showed their need of a Savior because they couldn't attain it. But through the whole thing, you just have this gracious provision that was made for them so they could have God in the middle of their camp, and so that they could be uh, with their people instead of outside the camp and, re- and rejected. They were able to be there uh, close to God and, and for him to be their God and for them to be his people. Uh, also, all through it, we see blood necessary, that theme that's all through Scripture. There's got to be blood. There's got to be blood. There's got to be blood until we see the, the perfect blood of Jesus that actually fulfilled that picture. Another thing, this is something I'm encouraged by, particularly with those sacrifices near the beginning of the book, that worship actually pleases God. <laughs> like we, we can, uh, and we see that in, in, uh, in the New Testament, that we can offer acceptable worship uh, of our lives and of our obedience that actually pleases God. And we don't have to be like self-flagellating that we're, we're nothing and we can't, we can't do anything and we're completely worthless. We are worthless in and of ourselves, but, but through Christ and his provision, we can, act, we can offer worship to God that is genuinely pleasing, like that is genuinely acceptable. And we don't have to uh, second guess everything that we do, um, but we can just rely on the provision that he's made for us. I think that's really helpful for us as believers, that there is such a thing as true worship and that it, there is such a thing as it actually pleases God because that's what we want to do. And if we were walking around all the time going, I can never do anything that pleases God, that would be discouraging. But because Christ has provided, it actually can. And I think that's a really heartening thing. Even our, even our feeble efforts. Right, as a living sacrifice, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it's never because of ourselves, it's just his provision. But with that provision, it's there, right? Yeah, I think that's really good news. Let's close. God, uh, we thank you for this part of the book we went through today, these bloody sacrifices. And we do see it echoes shadows of Jesus who was to come. And so we thank you so much for that. May you be honored by acceptable sacrifice of worship uh, in the coming hour as your saints are gathered together and throughout the week as we go about our lives, as our, our whole lives are to be worshiped to you. In Jesus' name, amen.